Just a quick reminder that it is our patrons that fully fund this podcast. And if you would like to join the team, go to patreon.com slash going off track. Boom. Now we're rolling. Rolling? <laughs> rolling on the river. Rolling on the river. I thought of that scene in Clueless where she does rolling with the homies. But I learned from our last intro that I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> uh, I think we've learned a good engineer. Listen, I'm not a good singer. We've been through this. I get tricked every once in a while in the idea that I'm singing along to like an old soul record and I get the voice going low and I'm like, yeah, I'm not so bad. And then anytime I'm exposed on a microphone, it's, it's uh, Pee Wee Herman all over again. It's it's unfair that you're really, you're the reincarnate of like an old soul singer and in, in your, in your in your soul, you you can do it, but the body that they've given you this time around just won't make it work, dude. Listen, if my life totally falls apart, there's still a chance <laughs> for my cheap whiskey-induced sexual soul record, <laughs> which I want to make. I'll make it all by myself. I'll play the drums. Emil inspires me with that. I, you know, I'll, <laughs> I, I sit down at my drum kit a, a lot, and I play this really sweet groove, and I'm like, hmm. Uh, Mm, feel that tasty groove and then in my head i start connecting it with sexually suggestive lyrics and and it really works like in my head it really works like it's something that could that could really bang so you know maybe uh, you need a mic maybe you can't sing unless you unless you're like playing drums and you need a mic on you get that little headset job yeah (laughs) Yeah, nice headset mic i used to have a mic up there when i used to play and you know, with well, for gaslight shows, because there's a lot of woes, and I would do those backups on records, you know. So I figured right. for a while, I'm like, oh, you know, I'll set one up, I'll add to the woes, you know. And then, I mean, literally a couple tours, and I'm just like smacking mics or right. knocking. Th- I'm like, I can't get this thing to just sit. Like, the only way to do it is to get the Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation like headset <laughs> mic, which I don't think I'm ready for that jump yet. <laughs> But, uh takes a well, big man to wear the headset. Regardless, I was really excited to talk to Emil. I know he'd probably chuckle if he heard me say this and if he's going to listen to the intro. I was a little intimidated, you know, to like... Oh, really? I was. Like, I don't know Emil personally. I'm a big fan of his music. I'm a huge fan uh, of his, like, podcasts and pretty much any time he appears, I really like, you know just one of those people like he you know uh, i connect with philosophically and uh appreciate what they say and um he has a really nice way of framing super large <laughs> philosophical <laughs> existential problems into like pretty simple easy to digest sort of responses sometimes that i really appreciate and i i almost so, I, I I can make the mistake with people like this. So this is what I had to try. I'll tell you a quick anecdote because I know we have a long episode. We can't get into it. But when I was 17, I had never been on a plane before. I had never really traveled. 
Um, and my aunt, who was living in Los Angeles at the time, uh, invited to fly me out since I graduated high school and drive from LA to San Francisco with her, um, mm-hmm. which is totally rad. Uh, and I was up for, it. I was super fucking nervous. Like I said, I'd never even been on a plane before and I was 17. So, you know, I was, you know, tackling those challenges and just everything new. And it, it was a huge story. But the one thing is my, my aunt is a rabbi oh, and, yeah. that you aunt. know, she, uh, is a very cool lady who's been through a lot of things. And at the time I was in a serious, like existential like crisis you know this is when my fear of death and things like that were like absolutely crippling to me you know um and and was a serious problem for me and i sort of had framed that trip when i was 17 as like all right i'm going out to california i'm spending like eight days in a car with a rabbi i'm gonna have this all figured out by the end Right. Like, like in my head, I was like, yo, I'm going on a road trip with a rabbi. Like, how am I not going to get this sorted out by the end? You know, like I'm going to ask these questions. She's going to have these answers. I'm going to come back to New Jersey. I'm going to be straight. I'm straight. Like everything. I will no longer fear death, blackness, you know, like all this shit. And I had this expectation. I, and then I went out there and, you know, I spend all this time with my aunt, who's a great, intelligent woman who has good answers for everything. But, you know, I was old enough at some point to sit back and realize, like, oh, like, shit, she doesn't really know either. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, she's cool enough <laughs> to be giving me responses that are like, well, you know, this is what I feel. It's what other people uh, feel. And it still kind of had this like open-ended thing to it where I was like, fuck. Yeah. Like, like this was the trip. Yeah. And now I'm just even more confused. <laughs> more questions. I was supposed yeah. to have less. Now I have more. So I bring that up because sometimes I get in this idea that I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have like two hours talking to Emil. He's really smart. Like he really has things framed pretty well. Yeah. Like, I think I'm going to really be like richer after this. And like, I got to approach and I had to like pull that out of this, like, and remember like, <laughs> yo, remember the whole context to what he talks about is basically don't do that. <laughs> you know, is <laughs> like the foregoing of the quest and, you know, uh, not putting people in these positions of idolatry, you know, where they have all the answers and you do not is kind of like, the juxtaposition he's trying to get away from in the first place. So I had to be disciplined going into this to be like, I want to have a great talk with Emil, but I don't need to like rest the fact that he's going to like heal my philosophical heart, you know? (laughs) And I did it. And I think we had a great talk where we got into lots and lots of different stuff. Um, and uh, really had like a deep, enriching conversation, but also didn't tell anyone how they're supposed to live, you know? Exactly. Just get into it. So all that being said, big shout out to Ann Leslie for taking me on the trip when I was 17 and Goldie, <laughs> her old car named Goldie. We had so much fun. And also uh, shout out to anyone who makes it to the end of the episode. It, it might have been a little... Um, staggered getting to it but we're talking about a guy named al burian who was the singer and guitar player 
in a band called Hellbender and another great band called Mile Marker. And he did a zine called The Burn Collector, which he eventually turned into a book, another book called Natural Disaster. And he was a huge influence on me and some of my friends like uh, in New Brunswick and kind of the music we were listening to and the vibe we were going for. Um, and he was a Chapel Hill guy. So I figured that him and Emil might have some connection together. Little did I know I was going to learn about the celibate commandos. <laughs> and uh, now I'm a new fan of this band. Big knowledge. So that's the reference there. Yeah. And uh, all right, let's uh, not waste any time. Let's, let's get in. Let's, I say we start the recording now. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> we already started. That's the going off track style, Emil. He knows. <laughs> yeah. So what was your, uh, what was your day like today? What'd you get into? Where are you exactly? And, and what have you been getting into? I'm in Sydney. I'm above the like Sydney opera house, literally in a 30, story four-star hotel that the government has put me in. I'm stuck up in the penthouse with like, I think Thurston Moore and maybe the, maybe the Dead Sea and a couple other people. And, um, I knew that I'd have to quarantine for two weeks. So I just, I happened to be finishing an extremely important record for me. Um, and so I brought it and, I'm sitting here kind of, I imagine like one of those like Nepalese bot farms or whatever, wherever they do that, you know, (laughs) and I'm I'm just sitting up in a cubicle and I'm just staring at a computer for, you know, something like 10 hours a day. And my life has actually been like this for a really long time. I mean, around 2000 four or so I went full computer like I I I moved off of cassette four tracks mm-hmm. and I I basically embraced the computer fully and since that point I turned into a mixing artist essentially instead of a performer of music I I barely play guitar anymore I don't really um I don't play drums really I I don't I barely sing anymore. For some reason, the bulk of my material that I have on all my hard drives is is all been performed. So, like, I sit around day in and day out. Um, Mind you, I'm not, like, trying to make this sound good or bad. I'm just telling you (laughs) the facts. Yeah, yeah. And I basically (laughs) just sit around and I just, um, I try to get the shit off of my hard drives and into the world so I can move on with my life. So my life since, you know, the nineties, the amount of material that I had has been emotionally very constipated. Like I can't, I can't move forward because I'm, I've had too many ideas in the past and it's kind of shackled me to this form of weird jail that I'm currently sitting in. I'm not saying it's bad, but, um, I I do think about it from time to time that at the happiest uh the, the the moments of my life that that you'd think I'd be 
you know, at the top of the mountain peak, the things that I've never thought I'd accomplish, you know, I mean, in those moments, I'm generally never, um, there's no congratulation. Like I'm, I'm like mm. tied down mm-hmm. with so many, uh, ideas that I've already not finished and right, right, right. boxes, uh, come up to my door and the UPS guy drops off a new record. I don't even open them. I don't look at them. I don't <laughs> yeah, sit right. there and like feel good. And I'm just telling you the truth. Like I, yeah. I, I'm a workaholic and I, I seriously, I kind of have a problem in that sense, you know? Hmm. What do you think would happen if like you had just one of those, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like some come to Jesus moment, you're like, listen, I'm cleaning myself. I'm cleaning the hard drive. Uh, you know, I'm throwing this computer into the sea and I'm starting over. Like, would that just, what would that do to your mind? Would it, or mm. would it, would it even be possible? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you're talking about a total hypothetical situation, but um, I know I don't have to ask myself. I don't need to think about it, but I know what would happen. And it would be that I would mire myself in an amount of new ideas so quickly that the process would not even be reset. I would just oh, be wow. okay. fully lost in a swamp of new ideas. And, you know, I don't know if there's like something, you know, particularly wrong with me, but like the the way that I, the way that my brain works, it's almost as though I'm not in control of it. Right. And mm-hmm. so I'm kind of, schizophrenically almost like trying to catch up with the road runner as <laughs> it leaves me behind. And I am a slave to these ideas. And I, this is so cheesy that I thought of this uh, as I'm saying this, but like the one thing I really appreciated about that new Frank Zappa documentary that, uh, that Alex winter guy made mm. was that, um, you really see in Frank Zappa's eyes that he is, it's the same thing. He's being kind of beaten to death right, by his yeah. own ambition and his own brain is, is out of his control. He's writing stuff so fast. I mean, it's kind of like that scene in my, possibly my favorite movie, Amadeus, where, where right. um, he's scribbling away trying to beat death, you know? And it's like, mm you can see in Frank Zappa's eyes that it's really not any fun. And yes. you can see how depressed he is uh, as he gets older. And, you know, I'd like to take those things and um, learn from them. And I, I'm like old enough now that I can say that I'm, I don't feel that much wiser for it. I just think I'm doing some of my better work. And so I'm kind of like trying to, pump the gas and get around this curve. And then what will be behind that curve? A whole nother curve. And it's just going to keep fucking curving and I'm never going to arrive. But this come to Jesus moment that you're talking about is really, it's an interesting hypothetical, but it just, I don't even believe in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when did you like this whole idea of like, um, because I see with Zappa sort of the idea that, you know, he was a very sober, sober guy, right? Like a lot of people think Zappa was all fucked up on drugs. And, you know, it seemed as if, like like you said, you know, the the manic writing and how, you know, 
deeply you can get into it and stuff sort of seem to like replace that for him. Like at when, at what point for you in writing music, did you like abandon the completion for the journey? Like a lot of people are sort of stuck in the other, you know, I've seen so many musicians stuck in like the, I have this like great record and I'm just like toying with it to death till I hate it and nobody's going to like it and it's never going to come out. And you seem to kind of be the exact opposite. And I'm wondering like when you came to that conclusion uh, about your musical journey. You know, there are so many ways to answer that that are just tedious and like would cause the audience to just claw their eyes out in boredom. (laughs) But... That is a beautiful question because um, there's something, there's a mystery somewhere in there that I would like to know myself. But I talk to young people like pretty constantly, like probably too much because I should be working. But like I get, I got calls on my phone today from Facebook from people like I've never heard of and I I thought it was you guys so I answered them <laughs> and Who was I, it? I, I dude I swear to god I don't <laughs> want to say his name I've never heard of him I don't know who he is he's okay. I think I added him a few days ago and he he literally was like hey man um I haven't been on Facebook for a while so I'm just um checking out to see how this app works and I'm uh cycling through the green dots you know and see, um, <laughs> i was in disbelief I, and so i just fucked with the guy for like 25 yeah. minutes because i was like i was just <laughs> shocked that people do that you right know, just right like test the app with somebody yeah, right. anyway what a great use a, of time yeah <laughs> just, i spend too much of my time doing that but most of the time when i'm talking to people on facebook and stuff um that are asking me genuine questions. Um, I've even done like some Skype and stuff with, with couples that are songwriters and they want to know things about, you know, finishing songs and stuff. And um, just that concept of finishing a song is, it's a pretty profound. um, Oh yeah, for sure. Like task. Right. So like growing up, I really loved pool and I was, a great pool player, but I huh. sucked at finishing. I couldn't, uh. I couldn't close the game. The eight ball like totally fucked me up. I couldn't quite huh. figure out the eight ball mentally. I don't know if it was like a choking mechanism, but um, I mean, just when I was a little kid, but like it, metaphorically, that would be the same thing. It's like, if you could write a song, you were just like the greatest performer of all the parts. And you were like, whatever the Frank Zappa of that, but you couldn't finish the g- fucking game. You couldn't hit the eight ball in. I mean, right. Were you, were you a great songwriter? No one, you know, no, we can't even gauge it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, probably not. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. But, but a thing that I, um, a thing that I like to encourage like younger people often when I'm talking, I hope that doesn't sound pretentious. It's just, the facts, you know, like when, when people ask uh, me stuff. If you can't carry sage wisdom into your core, <laughs> there's no reason to get here, you know? Like, <laughs> like what's the point of these grades, you know? <laughs> I mean, to me, it's just, I really like 
talking and I really like articulation. I love words and I, and like when people really want to go there, like I'm just completely down to go there. I don't care if it's a stranger on my fucking Facebook uh, app. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. It, it's exciting, isn't it? It's like, I don't know. For some people it's exciting. I also find it exciting. Like if I meet a random person who drops like a couple early SAT words and I know they don't want to talk about the weather and they want to go automatically to like death. I'm like, oh, <laughs> awesome. I'm like, finally, the fucking ShopRite had something to offer me today, you know? So yeah, I get it. I definitely get it. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that what I try to impart to them, like essentially is that giving yourself the license to be some kind of fantastic pretentious poet or whatever is <laughs> a pretty incredible fucking thing. You know, if you can imagine, yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can maybe manage to give yourself the license to take what you do really seriously, um, there is a world of like no ceiling and, and total potential there. Yeah. Yeah. But I find that most people, have they struggle the most with the conceptual, you know, fundamental um, feat more than just the technicalities. So then they get right. lost in the technicalities. And to me, I mean, I consider myself lucky because I just have no interest in the technicalities. I just I have <laughs> no interest in them. So uh, what I'm mostly concerned with is giving myself license to do something conceptually that seems somewhat grand you know something right. bigger you know and and yeah. i don't think about it but um because i do give myself that license at some part part of the process and and you're asking me when did i start doing that which i'd have to think about um but because i give myself that license i'm able to uh cut a huge amount of corners and just not worry myself with do i have the right microphone i've never right. in my life asked myself do I have the right microphone? I, that's a crazy thing for, for me to, in my world to ask because right, right. I have shit that I'm trying to get onto the fucking tape. And, and right. if I take, if I stop and I talk about the microphone, it's just, it's like hilarious to me. It's yeah, just like, yeah. I'm wasting time, losing time, you know? Sure. So it's like almost abandoning like that imposter complex people get like, just not even playing that game. Like I'm, I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm doing. And that gives you the, the confidence to see it through being well, unaffected by other people or something. I understand what people talk about when they say imposter complex, but I don't experience it the same way. Like hmm. I know that, I know that Duncan um, has wrestled with it. And uh, I understand why he's wrestled with it. It makes sense to me when he talks about it. But um, there's been times on his podcast, there was a particular time in New York when I think I was trying to explain to him the feelings of great insignificance, this feeling of a, a massive silhouette above you that's just kind of blanking you out towards... Um, the kind of consideration of of aliens passing by or the future <laughs> of mankind you know right, there's right. there's a feeling that i have felt my whole life that um this sort of hauntedness of just this being 
kind of a lost cause or something like that, right. that I can't break through like Kafka trying to get into the castle. Like that's the thing that I've always felt. I never felt like I was an imposter. Mm. Um, that seems like a much worse destiny because <laughs> then you're just like, you can't even get off the fucking diving board, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 But it was more for me. I was like, you know, way I had dove as deep as I could go into the pool, but I was touching my fingers and I'm saying, is this even water? You know, I was questioning the fundamental, mm. you know, reality of the thing. I wasn't like questioning, like, am I really good at what I'm doing? Like, fuck that shit. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. like I've got shit so, to do. So it kind of seems small almost. I mean, I really, this sounds strange, but like, as I get older, I find myself thinking about punk music and what it did to me, like on this, like, super global fundamental level. And like sure. when I think about the hearing black flag and in, in skate videos and stuff, like when I say those words, like other people just hear like, Oh yeah, that's cool. I had that sticker, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. But like that shit rocked my fucking brain. So yeah, right. <clears throat> I was sitting there and I was like, like how so, how so I'm just out of curiosity. Like, like, you know, you're a little kid, I don't know, whatever age, like a teenager, and you hear Black Flag, like, what is it about Black Flag? Is it just the, them being, you know, outside, you know, what, uh, what people considered normal at the time, pushing the boundaries, like sort of the, the darkness of it, the machismo yeah. of it, like, what, what was it that kind of, all, all of it, like, yeah. in that kind of way that, like, you know, back when we were growing up, like people, I, this is so anachronistic and fucking annoying for everybody to hear, but like back when we were growing up, like something like Repo Man or something was just this yeah. VHS that was like way, way back in the back of somebody's like dusty, yeah, you know, fucking TV room. <laughs> like the, none of the shit worked. You could barely hear it, but like there was this, the, a song like Emilio Estevez with the way he wore his fucking, um, apron. You know, he didn't put it all the way up. He right. just put it down. Yeah. And he yeah. had my name. You know, he's got my oh, fucking name. Yeah. And he's like singing the black flag, like, like uh -huh. walking down the train tracks. And there was something about him or something about that time where you like, it's such a small, tiny glimmer. But beyond that glimmer, as it symbolizes the light at the end of the tunnel, it represents on the other side just this whole universe of right. expression sure. and freedom, actual fucking artistic freedom. And I would like to refocus away from what everybody says about punk, which is like, it was the first time I heard, you know, someone do something that I thought I could do. It wasn't even that. Cause like, I thought I could, when I heard the Beatles, I thought, Oh, you know, at age eight, I was like, I can do that. You know, I just thought <laughs> right. I, I can like, cool, cool. You can do that. I thought I assumed you mm. could do that. Yeah. But the key was that when you heard minor threat, this was a young man. It's like a, as a boy, it was a fucking little boy. Yeah. And yeah. he knew the whole universe. You know what right. I mean? Like yeah, he was yeah, like sure. 18 
and he knew what he needed. He knew where he was going. He knew who to push out of his way. He knew that he wanted to go directly to the source and he knew he wanted to live a life based on like tenets of like truth and purity and, and like, just these beautiful things that like pretty fucking remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. Oh God, it was. To think about it how, blew like, my mind. how young and how like focused the message was. Like that's that really is like pretty remarkable, and when, when it's in that context. Well, that's it. I mean, that's that's what I'm. That's partially the answer. Is like as soon as I, you know, I would say as soon as I heard Minor Threat, but also the first Dinosaur Junior record, which was just called Dinosaur, that was right. all over the place. Not You're Living All Over Me, which was the cultural explosion. But the first record, Dinosaur, that when you kind of went sideways into that, that shit, it, it fucking freaked me out because I knew when I heard... Um, these two songwriters working together, I was like, Oh, it's, it's like the Beatles thing. Mm -hmm. And I could tell that they wanted to do every style that they wanted, like the white album or something, but like they would take a little bit of meat puppets. Then they'd take a little bit of the cure. Then they'd take a little bit of like Metallica and, and they just didn't edit themselves. So you see, I had all the instruments sitting in my mom's living room and I had my dad give me a four track and I had those two records essentially. I'm just like, man, these guys like beat me to the punch. So <laughs> I've got, I'm giving myself license to be part of their, this brotherhood of articulation. Just as a kid listening to it, I'm thinking, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to contribute to this. Like I've, I've got to do something important like this. And, <laughs> you know, from that point on, an amazing depression begins, an amazing weight descends down upon you and when you look sideways to like everybody else around you who's like just fucking wants to crush a beer and like dance (laughs) around and you know look at chicks or something you just think man is that really like are you guys happy and the fucked up thing is they look Really fucking he happy. He looks so happy. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They and, always look so happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't turn back. It was just too late for me. I was like, yeah. I'm doing now what I did when I was 15, day in, day out, just working, closing my door, tell my friends I'd see them later, and just working. And yeah. I don't know what, why this happened, but I can't stop the fucking train now, you know. It's interesting. I mean, you know, when I hear a lot of your story, it's sort of this, you know, obvious, like, you know, a, a pain journey. I think you even call it like a hero's journey sometimes. But the interesting thing that I think makes yours more unique is that it seemed to have always been attached with this, like, um, confidence like like for whatever reason the things you were feeling you never thought would drag you all the way down like that you would experience them Mm. but get out of it somehow or like when you heard minor threat it's not just like i want to go scream at this show and 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 you know get my emotions out it's like oh shit like i'm gonna do this too you know so it was like almost like taking that you know, the pain of your journey and it, and it was always sort of manifested forward. Like, where did that part of you come from? Like, is there, you know, um, like, 
historical precedent in your family of people like that or or any like direct person that sort of gave you help to have that kind of confidence where you just never you always assumed you were never going to fall totally off the ledge yeah there's god there's a few different answers to that um i will say that i wonder if this happened to you but like you know you're growing up you're a little kid and you're like doubting yourself at every turn Mm -hmm. and you're sure no one will listen to you but then one day um accidentally someone gives you a chance right Mm -hmm. and uh when you get up there and like People are looking at you. It fucking sucks. You know, it's like you're, yeah. it's terrible. And then, and then you get backstage or whatever. And like, I'm just, this is like such a random fucking thing to say. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like um, Steve Albini walks in your um, dressing room or yeah. something, you know, sure. and you're sharing your dressing room with, um, Although, I mean, this stuff happened to me, you know, and like, and Dinosaur Jr. is playing at the stage right after you. And, and all of a sudden somebody gave me the chance and it was an accident. It just happened this way. Right. And, um, my point is, is that once I got up there and, and people said, well, let's see, let's see what, who this kid is or something. Um, I found that something within me just navigated it. So it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like I had to like ask myself like what do what should you do you know it was just right. it was just like my body and my mind just pushed me forward through the fucking murk hmm. and um, I found that once I looked at my hands and and listened to myself that I knew what I was doing oh. and mm-hmm. I was shocked you know because <laughs> right. it's like uh, you just spend everybody spends so much of their life concealing themselves you know right and like uh evading everything and then something happens weird you know where like the universe opens a little fucking door and you walk through and you realize you know maybe i was kind of right you know like maybe what i felt inside was real Mm. you know and 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 the Steve Albini or something asks you a question and says, you know, they're the expert. You're not the expert right. in, in cultural, you know, in the textbook, sure. but like they ask you a question and you just answer. Um, I have no idea why I'm fucking mentioning him, but he was there, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like they ask you a question and you answer instinctively. You just right, follow right. your instincts. And in that moment you see in their eyes, they're just a human being that is lucky if they can follow their instincts. And right. Yeah. They've barely got their head above water and you might have a lot to say, but you have to let yourself fucking say it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And when That's... they put you on that stage, you know, I know this sounds like a fucking after school special. But <laughs> like, it's like when they put you up there, this is the thing is that you have to be yourself. You have no control over 
anything else and you have no control over yourself. You just have to let it happen. Mm. And it's, I'm not even saying that's terrifying or anything, but it's kind of all you've got, you know? And that's basically what happened when I think I came into the public forum because, you know, I existed, most of the music that I've made in my life was not in the public forum and still right, a lot right. of people haven't heard it, you know? So um, that's partially why I spend all my time on the computer because I'm essentially starting a label to try to get this stuff out. And um, <laughs> my standards is, they're driving me crazy. I can't, uh, I'm just, I'm having a lot of OCD workaholic stuff where I just really want things to be great and want them to be perfect. And I, and I, um, I wish I wasn't that way. Cause you know, other people just shit stuff out and it's like, they make millions of dollars. And here <laughs> I am staring at a computer screen, really arguing with myself, no one else. I'm just, I'm driving myself into a wild state of some sort of schizoid misery some some days and i honestly think that that's just how you make something good and i don't i think the the posi culture these days that says that you shouldn't you should never hate yourself or all that stuff i just i don't think that's the fucking point you know it's like when you try to make fucking star wars it's not real fun that's just how it goes. <laughs> right. You know, you want to make yeah. something good. It might not be super fun. A lot of people just, they balk at that. They, that's where they stop. They're like, oh, this isn't very fun. I quit. It's yeah, like, right. yeah, I'm sure fucking Einstein was just like, and Mozart or whatever. You know, I'm sure they just like sat around like, you know, this isn't that fun. I should just go be <laughs> a fuck boy in the corner of a rave or something. Yeah. I mean, has there, has there been anyone who's made something like, really really you know filled with substance at any point that was like truly enjoying themselves the whole way through the process and and i should double that with like enjoying themselves without without like drugs or alcohol you know like <laughs> like yes there is a way to like kind of pretend you're enjoying it um but i mean that i mean that leads to something i wanted to ask you too because i saw a quote where you had said that all the bad stuff gave me my best songwriting material. And I've definitely seen it a lot. I've been through it myself a lot and seen people, you know, torture themselves and create uh, sometimes negative situations in their life, just to even have an arena to write. And, you know, but you also talk sometimes about like sort of searching for a more peaceful life you know, that being said, it, it, it are the two things like mutually exclusive? Like, can you get to a point with age where you trust your instincts so much that you know something is good and you, you have it so honed in that it's not going to cause this kind of ripple emotionally and you can still put out something of substance or like, or is this just going to be it forever for you? You think? I really want to, like answer with like a brutal answer. <laughs> <laughs> I want it. I want it. Listen, I'm on my first cup of coffee, man. Let's go for it. <laughs> I just think that it's a hilarious fallacy that people think they can like choose this road or that road. You know, it's mm, like right. this whole idea that like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do this and on my new record and maybe I should. It's like, dude, 
you've already lost the plot. You know what I mean? Wow. It's yeah, like, right. like make the fucking thing, dude. Just make right. it, you know, because, right. because you think you have this like conscious ability to grab the steering wheel and just go over here for a little while and then go over here for a little while. It's, it's just not, that's not the reality of the spiritual capturing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's going to capture you and you're going to be who you are and you better just fucking hit record and do it. Like there's, there's no, there's no sort of like right choice you can make, you know, that's going to like, what, what is that? like precludes that you're looking for like record sales or something. No one's ever controlled record sales. No one's ever figured out how to make them, you know, grow or else everybody would be fucking doing that shit. But I'm just saying that, um, I think when you see the arc of someone like Neil Young is not the first person that comes to mind. But I think that all the great bands, it could be the new Gang of Four box set, you know, it's like it's focused on Gang of Four for those like four or five years or like, you know, when people talk about Black Flag, they're kind of talking about them in a certain area. They're not really talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the reason why is because Black Flag stepped through a gate way you know an Mm. oracle of of sort of like they experienced something they sacrificed themselves they gave themselves to the thing that you you have to do you know and they didn't necessarily over narrate that they just did it they they didn't know where they were even going i mean the Greg's got the fucking Grateful Dead shirt on the whole time. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is incredible. It doesn't yeah, it's even not make like the sense. past was like paved ahead for them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. And so when the path is when the path is not paved, that's when the most beautiful things happen. When mm-hmm. the fucking path is paved, like just don't even Bulk. tell me about it. Bulk. I don't even <laughs> know about it. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost like when like underground music seems to get kind of hijacked by like the pop context, right? It's like, cause everything you're talking about, that's impossible. If I put you in a room with like a pop producer, basically their entire pitch to like every record label they've ever worked with is the exact opposite of what you're talking about is that I actually do know how to harness culture I know how to give these people exactly what they want, the sounds they want. I know how to make this artist sell to these people. I mean, it's literally like how their whole thing is based off of. So I I feel like maybe sometimes what you're talking about is maybe when underground music or artists kind of gets, yeah, like I said, maybe like hijacked by that pop context almost. You're you're probably right. But like, I don't have anything to do with, that stuff and i don't have to and like definitely not your lane at this point (laughs) yeah no and i don't have to give you know because i give myself license to not give a fuck about it you know i think that's you part of the power that that i can give a young kid you know is they can they can look at me and say you know i don't know how much money that guy makes i have no idea i don't fucking care do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and like you know, it just doesn't even fucking matter. I, one of the most powerful experiences I, I sort of remember that's in my, it's in my memory. I don't know if it was really real, but like I was at school kids records. I was probably like 
13 or 12. And like this local skinhead band, that <laughs> it's so funny. They were called Patriot and they would let me go to their um, like band practices in, in Chapel Hill. <laughs> Wow, I mean, pe- some people still actually know about this band. It's hilarious. Are they are they one of those bands that plays like those weird barbecues I see on like a YouTube, like some weird <laughs> skinhead barbecue in the middle of the forest? <laughs> I have no idea. It's definitely some like <laughs> some oi like style that like as a kid at twelve years old, you know, people like think I shouldn't talk about this, but I think they don't understand that. that like, skinheads as a British movement was a, was a distinctly pretty non-racist movement, you know, in the yeah. beginning is a working class movement. And this, that's what these guys were, you know, they're just like, they just dug fucking gravel out of like, you know, ditches and shit. Yeah. Yeah. Or just got back from the army and stuff. And they I definitely knew the types for sure. Totally. And they, they had, the, I'm not, I'm not like, like glorifying anything or defending anything. They were just very, scary brawling weird uh a a certain type of cult you know right and like i found you know when you're 12 12 year boy like you you fucking anybody like that just looks like it's just seductive and scary you know right yeah and they let me watch them at their um you know practices i was like allowed to like sit there and watch them and and I think I've told this story before, maybe even on here, but like the drummer went to jail and I, they asked me to be the drummer and I was, I was so scared, but like, I basically just avoided them. And I guess that was saying no, but it was like, like youth of the day and all those bands is like, if that was like my moment, maybe I should have done that, you know, <laughs> right. like 13 years old. Um, if your if your it, line went from uh Patriot to Ohm, that'd be fucking pretty <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> It's it's likely, but like it could have happened. But but the funny thing was they like put out their first cassette. This is how I remember it. And and like what I liked about it is like I was let's say I was twelve, thirteen or something, but what I liked about it is that I knew what the underground was and I didn't even know what that meant, but I just knew what it was and and I don't know why, you know, I mean someone who's read about me might think um, because my dad was uh, friends with David Crosby and Fred Neal and all those people. Like, maybe I grew up around music. Well, I, I didn't really. My mom right. whisked me away when I was two. So I, I didn't know what I was looking at when I saw this stuff. But when I saw it, just like skateboarding in Back to the Future, I just knew immediately, holy shit, like fuck everything else you know what i mean yeah yeah and so so i had this experience where they they put out a tape and i had it i think in my mind i had in my right hand and then there was like a new cd and shrink wrap from the school kids in my left hand and it could have been the beatles it could have been anything yeah um but i wanted the tape and i just kind of it was like i just kind of like threw the cd in the trash wow and you invented this, roadside records all the way back then. <laughs> it, was, it was like this moment where I just, I discarded the entire fantasy of like the industry in, huh. in, in my child mind. I just thought this shit in the shrink wrap bullshit is a joke. Like it's not that it's bad. It's not that there's something wrong with it. It's not that it's even infected with untruths. But the tape 
was what I was excited about. And the tape was equal to the corporate, you know, you know, manufacturing of this thing mm. and, and the, the entire fame that went along with it in the connotations of whatever I was holding my hand. And I had the other tape and I just went the other way. And I just, you know, never thought that was like even cool. I just thought, you know, people can fucking change the world and they can do it exactly the way they want. And they don't need any one helping hand of this fucking massive bloated industry. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking Mm -hmm. about when you're sitting in a studio and the producer calls the label, because I've been there, man. And, (laughs) and I've, I've played guitar on records. I've played bass on records. I've played drums on records and I've been hired and I've been paid. And all you want to do is make the fucking client happy. And that is just like working at motherfucking Wendy's dude. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm all you want is that client to walk in and say, fuck, that was great. And the label says, damn, you guys did a great job. And you close the door and you move on with your life. Yeah. But like, that's an assembly line, bro. That's not, (laughs) that's not fucking, that's not fucking Mozart. You know what I mean? Well, God, I'm opening a can of worms there, but, (laughs) <laughs> anyway, it's all right. It's uh, just because of your Amadeus reference before it, was, it just slipped out. <laughs> right. No, I mean, it's not just ironic because he probably did have to fucking write bullshit for the king and shit. Oh, but, yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he probably did. Mm. Almost. But anyway, actually, yeah. I really feel like although that appeared to be a massive babbling rant, um, <laughs> what I was trying to do was answer your initial question. And I think about your that question a lot. Like, like, how did this little boy? Like, well, who made this thing? Like, what? Who did this? Because I'm not in control. I'm just like waking up, and I've got to do the the grunt work that this whatever this nervous system has ordered me to do. And I yeah. feel, you know, like Sartre said that we behave, and later on we make up all the reasons as to why we did this and that. And, you know, and then I felt, you know, I feel like Art Garfunkel or some fucking idiot. It's like, you know, and then I felt, you know, maybe I should study the opera. And then I felt maybe I should integrate some of the early Spanish, you know, note sequence. It's like, fuck you, dude. Just fuck you. Get out of here. So no news or something for you anytime (laughs) soon. (laughs) It's just, that's bullshit because like all that shit, all those note sequences, that's just inside you. That's like, that is in the universe. That is like available to everyone. I don't need to go, you know, study the, some Persian violin expert and get, you know, sanctioned like this perfect, you know, some sort. That's like that, that exact kind of search for affirmation is just, it's not what we're doing here. It's not, it has nothing to do with art, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you ever get like, you know, because between Drifter Sympathy and your songs, you know, and for this long, you know, so much of your self is exposed and so many of your stories, like, you know, as you said earlier, a lot of people come up to you and probably like sort of unload like their stories onto you, I'm sure, or kind of look to you for, you know, philosophical advice or something. Do you ever get annoyed at just being like the heavy guy 
and just wish like someone came up and just start talking some bullshit with you? I, I have not because, um, I find that direction in life, like a hundred percent redemptive. So mm. because I believe in it, it, I don't even believe in it. I know it and I am it essentially. I am this thing. Um, it's not something like I read in a book, you know, or whatever. Right. Like yeah. I, like, like I affirm it, you know? So like if somebody, just like I said before, if they want to talk about it, I find it interesting. And right. like I give, I get in trouble with my friends. They're like, don't answer that. Don't write back. Don't talk to that person. It's like, well, I'm enjoying them a lot more than you right now, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, All it's these interesting. Yeah, right. yeah, it's like totally, it's the, this is the direction I was supposed to go. And I'm mm. kind of wandering through the motherfucking desert and talking to John the Baptist or whoever. And I don't know what I think of someone until I start talking to them. And I, and I think giving people a chance and, and listening to their story can be extremely rewarding. Um, I don't get annoyed. I think, I think if I had gotten more, um, more visible, like, like Ian from minor threat with the whole straight edge thing, Mm. like if I had become a target, you know, people were like really fucking with me, it would be a totally different thing because, you know, I mean, a couple kids, you know, start up their own podcast and, it's like about all the drugs they did and, the, you know, and how they're such a genius at making music. It's like, that's fine. Go do that. No one's going to pay you for that, man. Like nobody's right, right. nobody's going to give you any money. Take it um, from me, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like with Ian or like Mark Thread or something, I think he was made into a colossal target. And yeah, I think he sure. had to decide how to like, um, field that and i think that can really twist you not that i'm not saying he's twisted i think bob dylan is greatly uh mangled Uh, by it but i think there's people out there who were just so visible i mean you see it i often talk about the the king of comedy jerry lewis's character i mean he plays this famous guy who is a target throughout the movie and his Uh his it's just so cool because his visage, the, his face, the way he plays the part is so real. Like, it's so real. The the face that he makes when he's being stalked and, and then kidnapped eventually by Sandra Bernhardt and, <laughs> and De Niro and stuff. Um, his face is just, it's like this infinite kind of level of pity for them. But it's almost, it's just sorrow. Sorrow for the human predicament. Yeah. Sorrow for the human uh, whiffing of the fucking potential goal of like evolution. And and he looks at them and he just feels this great sadness for the immense power of stupidity in the world. Mm. You know? Yeah. There's something so beautiful about the way he can, he can just do that with his fucking facial expression. And it is, yeah, I, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's an amazing role the the way they wrote that role. But um, but I think you know there are situations where you can be made into a target. You know, I am not, I am not a famous person. You know, I'm not like I can walk into any place and nobody knows who I am. And 
it's fucking great. You know, I mean, I, I, nobody's ever gonna like shoot me in the street, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see that, you know, it's funny, you know, and I think of the way, you know, as we get older and older, you know, a lot of celebrities or, you know, pop star people that, you know, now just grew up in my collective narrative who are turning into something else. For some reason, the guy like Jim Carrey comes to mind, you know, who like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, like, it's just, oh, look at fucking ace. Like, look at literally someone talking out of their asshole on a move. You know what I mean? Literally, you know, and then like 30 years later or something, you know, I see like presenting themselves with this like utter like sage wisdom, like, like they figured out the matrix a little bit and like now they're going to tell you what the matrix is all about since they're done. And I'm like, and I'm like, man, when you're that famous, there's just like no way to get older that looks good at all besides for just hiding, <laughs> right? Like there is no way to even potentially age gracefully with that kind of stuff on you, right? Like, you know, it's not like, they're usually saying anything bad. Like, listen to Sting talk for an hour, you know? I'm like, I'm like, wow, listen to this fucking guy. Like, he's got something sorted out that I don't, you know? But, like, it's still, it's just, like, universally mocked. There's just, like, no way to be, you know? Like, it's impossible, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, you're so right. Those are great examples of just people who you just, you just kind of want to just, like, as they're talking, you just want like a big dump truck to back up behind it and just just like open this like th- four hundred pounds of cow manure on wrap their it up, head. wrap it up, B. Yeah. wrap it up, yeah. totally. We just don't need you guys, man. Like that's great. You you wrote the song uh, where you know about Roxanne, but that's fuck off. You know whatever. But like, um, I mean, whatever. I like I like things about Stuart Copeland. I like, but but I. You know, it's not, people think that, that the world of celebrity is like this infallible, permanent, like yeah. hall of, you know, it's like the, the fucking Parthenon or something. It's like, <laughs> right. these are just fucking losers that got lucky. The yes. guy with the <laughs> talking out of his ass. I mean, that's like, I, is Jim Carrey is like, he's like one mi- mil notch above like, uh, Jim Carney, you know, like isn't <laughs> isn't that the guy who did Ernest P. Worrell? I believe so. He's got yeah. like a couple more faces or whatever. That's cool. Um, or or just got, had a better fucking manager, you know? Like maybe Ernest could have been in the Truman Show and done a very nice job, you know? And you know what people? It's the unconscious power of 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 wealth too, you know, yeah. and attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just That's just having that much wealth and that much attention. I don't know why it's so hard for people to just demystify to me it's it's that much time you know like i see jim carrey and i see people like this sometimes you know getting on youtube for their daily fucking affirmation or whatever and i'm like you know like half the people you're talking to have earbuds in going to fucking work you know like they didn't have the first 90 minutes of the day to eat goji berries and like think under their tulip tree and like all the nice things you get to do to get to the other side. Like there's actually like a a physiological element to it as well, which to me sometimes just comes off like pompous, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, 
you're you're inviting me into like the hater arena and like <laughs> i have an i have a part of myself that will go there pretty hardcore and don't people don't to. i don't do that on my podcast and shit so like um because i do i do have a very optimistic view of humanity in some ways the the in a global sense but like well what's the optimistic I, tinge G- give us a little because we have been on a negative bender here for like 20 minutes maybe well, i don't think like whatever if this is negativity you're think like i think people like i think it makes them fucking laugh you know i think i think that's mm. good and yeah. and i think that like when i listen to people talk I'm like begging them uh, under my breath, like to just be honest with me. And like, mm-hmm. I I love it when they finally just like let that, you know, drawbridge down. It's just so refreshing. And like, if I was listening to someone like, I don't want to hear some fucking, you know, whatever Bill Hader on like, you know, his favorite five cereals. Like, I don't want to hear that <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? Right. Like I want to hear him tell me something about really like, like what burnt him into the fucking fires when he was, you know, throwing up, like about to go on stage and had stage fright. I want to hear right. something re- real, you know? Yeah. And like, uh-huh. if there's negativity in the process of that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's like, Right. Embrace that sure, shit sure. and go there. And if you're for some reason trying to edit that out, or if you're for some reason thinking that that's somehow like not entertaining enough or doesn't sound good to people's ears, it's like, no, that's the big mistake. You know, mm. like you're going to fucking edit that shit out. That's the stuff that makes you, you. Right. And, I wish I could I could have the unedited like uninhibited version of people. So like if I sound like a negative um whatever egomaniac or whatever, you know, any anything that's turning somebody off somewhere, it's it's by design. I mean, I wanting I want someone to meet me halfway here and I want to feel like I'm giving them something I'm really giving them something like <laughs> Right, I, I, your time is going out the window here, man. And I'm yeah, like, right. if you're listening to this, like, I, that's devastating to me. In theory, that huh. you might just be like, um, I don't know. It's there's something great, just like massively sad to me about wasting people's time, and that's the way it ought to be. You know, huh. I wish people really approached. You know, fucking opening a restaurant like that or yeah, you know, yeah, sure. running a podcast like that. Like, I mean, you know how many times people I've been sitting in the fucking back in the day, back in Portland and in some backyard barbecue and some fucking herb is like, <laughs> let's do a podcast together. And I'm like, <clears throat> why? <laughs> I'm like, what, what, what do you, what, what do you want to talk about? And they're like, We'll figure that out later. I'm like, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> what, like 400 episodes in, we'll figure that out later. That's what people do. And they see nothing wrong with it. They yeah. see nothing wrong with the fact that they are just creating fucking noise pollution and hurting the world. I mean, that goes for musicians, especially, you know, like, yeah. I mean, 
if that's the whole thing we started talking about is the giving yourself license to dream like in a grand sense, you know, yeah. like, uh-huh. please do that for right. me, for the listeners, please do that because we don't need you to just see you playing a guitar, man. Like we had the beach boys, bro. Yeah, we, you know, right. we, had, yeah. we had the kinks, you know, that was a long, 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 long time ago. Like, please right. Do something that like, like it stimulates my fucking mind, and like I'll try to do the same for you. But we gotta meet halfway. Fuck considering yourself a consumer, and you're just gonna sit around and like, you know, like Google the ten best affordable TVs this year, or whatever whatever people do with their fucking time. Give yourself the license to contribute to the conversation, please, for me, for my sake too. Yeah, you know? yeah. Is that you think what what draws you sometimes to? like that music of the sixties and seventies, um, you know, especially like the psych rock stuff. Is it, you know, partially the fact that it feels like substantive, it feels more important. Like, uh, like there was an intent behind what they were doing, not just like making it to make it. For sure. I mean, like the, that era has always been something that, has like magical, you know, like dust on it for me ever since, you know, on the fucking plane over here, I saw, uh, back to the future again. And like, (laughs) you know, it was, it was the skateboarding, but it was also that he gets on stage and like shreds guitar, but it's also that he somehow goes back into the fifties, all of that stuff. Like my, whatever, my 10 year old, whatever brain, um, that shit, that was my fucking shit, dude. It it fucked me up hardcore. I probably <laughs> went out and got the goddamn life preserver vest and sprayed my hair up just like that, parted in the middle. I mean, that was my shit. And um, you kind of had a Doc Brown too, right? Didn't you have some crazy, some crazy locals <laughs> that you would hang out with that you probably shouldn't have been hanging out with? Like the, the sort of guy that you've been <laughs> Dude, it's cool because Doc Brown is like in the film, um, Michael J. Fox and his, um, their rendering of those, those characters. It just, it really works like on so many different levels. And I, I just think it's a really beautifully, the continuity of the film really works very solidly. It's, it's hilarious, very smartly done the way mm-hmm. they keep flipping from the past to the future. Um, nobody really needs to hear me my thoughts on that um <laughs> but like but back then um i feel like that 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 put seeds in my brain and and there was a certain kind of addiction to the 50s that and especially the 60s there was an addiction to the 60s that was going on in the 80s and it was raging right. and it's in its biggest bonfire um it was the beginning of the Jimi Hendrix like fucking tie dye at the mall and all that stuff was just becoming such a fucking massive business. Yeah, and um, right. everything every night was some new fucking documentary on the sixties and like the same fucking footage of Kent State and all the stuff. And yeah, right. my mom crying and you know just <laughs> Bobby Kennedy's assassinated again. You know, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I was. I was molded in that shit. But, um, but I think more importantly, um, the first time someone does something, the same thing with the black flag thing, the first time someone sets their feet down in a certain rhythm 
going in a direction nobody's seemed to have gone before, it's always the best fucking version of the thing. It's uh-huh. always the most interesting. It's always the most just um, the curiosity at hand is electric. And yeah. you can, I always, I usually think of like Cluster or like, because Brian Eno was obsessed with, with Cluster mm-hmm. or maybe even uh, like, um, maybe even Basil Kirchen, who, you know, like Brian Eno says, invented ambient music. If you oh, really okay. want to get really deep, keep going back and go back to, you know, maybe like Nature Boy by Eden Abez or whatever. Like there's this lineage of like sort of secret outsiders that built these bridges, you know, but every time it was the first time they put their hands on these um, devices, it could be music concrete, you know, every time they did it for the first time, it just felt the best and the Mm. results were the most interesting to me. Like fast forward to whatever, you know, beach music in 2021, like, do we need it? Mm, Probably not. Like, like we just like, (laughs) like, let's go back to like Fats Domino or something. Just leave it there. It's a beautiful discovery. But (laughs) you know, every time you walk, down the promenade with your grandma holding her hand <laughs> these days and you hear somebody trotting it out again. I mean, that's not, that's not discovery. No, you know? no, we don't need more Tommy Bahama music for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just think as a, um, a bit of a tenet of sort of uh, anthropological digging, which is something I just, I'm going to do whether or not I record a podcast or whatever, sure. is something yeah. I, I like to do. Um, I think when you ask about the 60s and 70s and stuff, I think it's just that the first time someone gets into a bit, a patch of wilderness and they're, they're open and they let themselves experience something sort of at, you know, a certain kind of, there's a cost to it. There's a certain kind of risk um, and they take that risk f- fully and, and they don't uh, edit their sort of experience and they just give it to you um, mm. raw. That is basically <laughs> all the greatest moments of human kind, you know, I mean, in, right. in a nutshell, as we, we progress, you know, there's as long as someone is present and pure about their approach, it will communicate and translate to the, to the viewer, the listener in a way that, you know, I mean, we treat things like Kurosawa or something. We tr- we treat these classic Ingmar Bergman as though, oh, what a master. But do you think, you know, Kubrick really understood what 2001 would look like <laughs> until he saw it himself? Right. You know, I mean, he, yeah. he, he had a dream, but like he didn't know where he was going. And, and through that process insane things happen, you know, when when you're recording yourself or writing or whatever. I mean, there are things that happen where like, you can't explain them. You, you, you would like to hear something happen. And I mean, I had a lot of experiences on the LSDs and looking at my hands hit some sort of keyboard node in 1996, you know, in a, in the the basement studio under the kitchen that I had in a closet and just, you know, the room like lighting up with some sort of feedback and it, and it's bending and like arcing and curving perfectly into 
some sort of unpredictable bit of the chord that the song has just gone into, but I didn't know where it was going and I'm tripping incredibly hard and maybe there's a teacher banging on the door and, and I can't even hear them. I, and I'm just in some sort of state, you know, huh. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I've succumbed to it yeah. I, and I'm not feeling like I'm doing it. And I look down and my hand is on the keyboard and I am hearing this thing, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a feeling of total abandon, like just like not even controlling anything anymore. Yeah. And I think those, the most beautiful parts of the whole thing happens. And certainly um, the industry forces us to lose that level of kind of just blind experimentation because totally. it, it's not sanctioned by the statistical right. sales numbers that, that people are looking at that they want to see again, right? Yeah. It's so interesting that's partially, too. Yeah. Partially my answer. No, it's cool. It's, you know, and I, you know, um, my knowledge of that stuff was fairly cursory. You know, I like almost everything I hear, but past like, like you said, like Can or Brian Eno, you know, like I start to get pretty limited in my knowledge. And I learn a lot actually listening to Drifter Sympathy and kind of hearing some of these old tracks and really like, I'm like, cool, like Emil did the work for me. I don't have to look through <laughs> every record that came out in like Iceland in 1972. He found the coolest one. He's playing it for me now. Like, perfect. Um, so you're, yeah, you're like my bizarre European like Spotify at this point. Uh, but I noticed in the one, and, and it got me thinking, uh, I was listening to an episode just, just preparing for this, and mm -hmm. I heard a part in one of them where I'm like, holy shit, that's the guitar part from the Shaft theme song. Like 100%, <laughs> that's the guitar part for that. And then I'm listening on to the song, and I'm like, I'm almost certain this Icelandic band was listening to Isaac Hayes when they made this. Right. And, yeah. and the thing it made me think about was how, uh, you know, their connection to the experience was so much different than an American or even an English person where they're so disconnected from the cultural part of what makes Isaac Hayes, what makes Shaft. Like, how could they even understand Shaft? And like what it mm -hmm. really means, you know what I mean? And so I think they had a connection with that music that was like unconnected to culture in a way. So they could almost like take pieces of it more naturally. And it seems like um, because of it, they were able to mold like a lot of different things with less uh, obstruction maybe than, than like an American or English person would at the time. You think that's true? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's still the same. That's a different maybe faction of the same kind of naivety that I'm sort of um, trying to sort of herald or something. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. there's, there's, there's a level of naivety. Naivety is thought of as, you know, sort of like this bad word, but um, – in terms of the Garden of Eden or something, I think it's um, <laughs> right. it's the thing that we're chasing. It's the thing that we want to get back to, and you. That's what I mean. Being around a child, you know, it is so refreshing. You know, you're recapitulating this feeling of of just kind of experiencing things, you know, greater things in real time with no jadedness. I mean, there's a reason why naivety, in a sense, is this insane commodity that we can't, you know, mm. get back or pursue, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're just talking about like, 
when people let things make massive imprints on their brain and and how we just shut down that potentiality as we we go along because because there's so much security in in feeling that you have learned something and and you now mm. know something yeah. but you actually are closing a door by feeling that way oh yeah know? yeah yeah that's because true. you know you're you've sort of ushered away the fear you know and and then mm. and in a sense i think that may be a potentially even more correct reading of the fear of god that you must have that people try to you know sort of preach into you right i think it's a misunderstanding i think that the mm. fear the, the real true fear of god that's so good is is letting yourself not know and letting yourself mm. be scared and like and just opening up your senses and and being imprinted upon you know yeah. and that level of naivety is one of the most important um sort of core features of consciousness that we lose um if we believe our ego or whatever if we believe this idea that um we're some sort of expert, which we never really become. You know? Right. We got to give just rooms of little kids, like a bunch of moogs and stuff and just <laughs> see what happens. You know, let's really, maybe this is the next level of musical experimentation. Like let's get 50 test kids, you know, like put them all, give them the same track. The same, I'll write the, we can write the drums together, something funky for them. And let them all go to town on a moog with no prior knowledge. We might get you. You realize there's like some super high level like record collector listening to this right now. It's like, yeah, that that's an ABD that's been done. That bro. was done that's in like- 1982, <laughs> Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so here, let's take a little a little pivot here since we've been so heavy. This is time for the program called Mystery Friend. I know you're probably thinking, like, Jesus Christ, like, is he going to grab, like, you know, crack or, like, something? No, it's not bad like that at all. Um, And uh, not not saying it's bad, but um, so I went and got it, and you have to guess who told me the story. I think you'll figure it out pretty quick. Okay. So this person said, you met them at a studio, and Emil had a paper cup with coffee without a lid. Oh, you can stop. stop. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't even hard, man. Too easy, I know. But it's more about, so he says, he said, he gave me this whole spiel. He's like, he met me at the studio. I gave him shit for 20 minutes. Who walks around the city with an exposed cup of coffee? (laughs) I mean, I, I kind of agree with him a little, like... Yeah, I like, did change after that. But um, <laughs> did he gave you enough shit? <laughs> Dude, he still talks about it. I mean, it, still I texted him, he brought uh, it's not like he thought about it. He gave me this answer like 12 seconds after I texted him. Um Did he say I was like trying to save the earth or anything cool? No. No. It, <laughs> that would actually make more sense. Yeah, see, I went to more of like a What's Emil doing? Like you don't you don't walk around New York without without a lid to hot coffee. You know that's a bad idea. Um, yeah. 
It is some sort of New York thing, kind of, I guess. But It um, is, I think, yeah. Like, it sounds like something you might, you could get away with in Portland a lot easier, probably. But that, you know, that says more about John and Yellow than it says about me. <laughs> I think so. I think I was going to meet him. Partisan had, like, set me up. Um, they wanted me to make, like, a a big, huge, like, Dark Side of the Moon record, and, and they'd set me up to go meet him, and... I'd never thought, you know, I'd like to work with the the dinosaur junior guy because I probably thought I, you know, wouldn't that would never happen. But um, as a kid, I mean, those a lot of those early records were my my favorite thing. And then yeah. um, then here I am, you know, just trying to keep my uh, my appointment, walking down right there, um, right off Metropolitan to this studio that I think has since closed called like. That'll come to me. And I came around the corner. It's Fluxivity. Yeah, Fluxivity. I think that was it. And um, I came around the corner and he was staring at the cup as I walked the whole whole block. And I'm getting closer and closer. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? (laughs) Like, there wasn't even like an introduction or he's like, what's going on, man? And I'm like, what what's going on yeah what's going on i mean you know i'm sure i was hungover (laughs) right just keeping an appointment in in williamsburg of all places or something you know i never thought i would have to do this shit so i'm like (laughs) i'm I'm sipping my coffee he's like um do you want to go get a lid for that or something (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like um nah nope and uh he's like Okay, so we're kind of we're supposed to walk around the corner to this uh, really nice restaurant, and I seriously, dude, three feet, every three feet. What are you gonna do? Do you should we go get one now? Because what, like, dude had a a breakdown. Yeah, you crossed his wires there. You crossed his wires. But in a weird way, I probably. I probably knew. Okay, this guy's this guy's a fucking real thing. Like he doesn't. <laughs> right. he, this is like his. He's in an internal landscape, and I've right. got I've got to yeah. like come to him, you know. And I, I'm sure maybe just to calm him down, I went and got the got the lid. But man, but you were I'll impressed you by how he like immediately gave a shit about nothing else but that. Well, it was super old school, like you know. Yeah. Bensonhurst of him or something. Uh-huh. There was something very deep, deep like Sicilian New Yorker about the whole way he did it. But yeah, um, yeah. I know exactly but, how he did it and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, John and Yellow is um he's an unusual dude. He's one of the best people I've ever mm-hmm. known. Yeah. Um he's a very special dude and uh that was just, I mean, that, that anecdote, I don't even know like what it's like, why it's even relevant, but the story, I'm glad it makes you laugh. It was hilarious. No, I think, I think it's relevant more in the personality of our protagonist here, you know? Um, cause, cause it is, it is like it, it, I know, you know, you lived in Brooklyn, so I'm sure you figured it out fairly quickly. The fact that like someone from around here, if they respect you, or they're interested in getting to know you, like you just kind of start breaking balls first thing, 
<laughs> you know, it's like it's like almost kind of like a test run. It's like it's like all right, how is this like dude gonna take this? And let's see, let's see how he figures this out with the coffee. But with John, I do think it probably fundamentally really bothered him. Um, yeah, like, like he really didn't like what was happening. It was concerned <laughs> for the well-being of everything. Which is so awesome. Well, no, that's interesting. If he was testing me, then then that was genius because um, he's hired me again and again, and um, I think. I don't know, you know, I don't know the true, his interpretation of how I work or anything, but like, I think he just likes that, like, nothing phases me and I would like him to be happy and I will do whatever it takes to make him happy because he's got a job in front of him that, you know, I'm not the producer, you know, and um, I, I suppose I really respect the the old school craft you know like mm-hmm. i think if i'm sitting in a recording studio which i've done for you know so much of my life now um i think i look around you know the musicians like i've no interest in them i'm focused on the engineer i like i really i have a deep respect for the engineer i like watching the engineer in a jeff emmerich sense in the making of like revolver or something like sure. Paul McCartney is fucking drilling that tax man guitar solo. I mean, it's absolutely devastating, but what you're hearing Jeff Emmerich through that whole record, I mean the, like the fucking way the bass saturation is hitting the speakers and the way that, you know, obviously John Lennon singing through the Leslie and, the way Ringo is swinging so tightly, it's just, it's all through the lens of Jeff Emmerich, you know? Mm. And to me, that is just such a beautiful skill to be so focused on the big picture mm. that totally. like, you know, it's cool. Like he hires me as a, a, you know, I don't know if you know this, but like he's hired me mostly as a bassist, which is weird. <laughs> I didn't know Because like a lot no. of people don't know that I play um bass but but you know because i'm a drummer and a singer and kind of a paul mccartney fan um i like to just play really active like really fast and really like a lot of fills and stuff and Mm. sing along and and i like to improvise throughout the whole song and then he he likes to cut it together so we have this weird running method but like it's all because he is open-minded and it's all because he appreciates just the vibe um hmm. it's not really me it's like more him just like seeing something in me and i right. really respect that um because he not only is he such a just a good person a good friend but like his skills are straight up dying language and that guy knows yeah. how yeah. to do things that i don't even know if he can explain they're so yes. ingrained inside yes. of him yeah uh, and his stories are unmatched. Oh yeah, no, like sitting around. Well, I think I bought you uh, an extra um, uh, avenue. I <laughs> I'm gonna send you a whole box after this. <laughs> but I think I bought you an extra opportunity to hang out with John because I don't know if you know, but up you know when he was still living in Jersey City, he would run these uh, fairly regular bowling nights. Um, 
where he would go to this really, really cool old school bowling alley up in Union City in the second floor of a building. And he would just invite like this random conglomeration of people, you know, like locals he knows, family, friends, whatever band was in town, uh, you know, random people like me. I would just be on a text with like 20 other people just like, hey, bowling Friday, you know, six o'clock Union City. Let me know. And he'd show up to this and it would just be this great like mixture of people with just John in the middle being kind of like the the transmission oil, you know, just kind of like connecting and making sure everyone was vibing. And I think I've never actually sat, you know, recording with him. I've seen him in the studio at work, but, you know, I think that's where, you know, a, a modern day producer who's, you know, a real like technician on Pro Tools and is, you know, doing all this stuff, like maybe they're losing like a vibe technician. And John mm-hmm. is like a vibe tech, right? Like he knows how to just get that room full of people to be looking in the same direction. Well, you know, I mean, to kind of wrap this, this sort of full circle, it, it like, that whole like rant I went on about the, uh, you know, trusting yourself and following your instincts. Um, if you, if you tap him on the shoulder and he's mixing and you say, how are you compressing, um, that kick drum or like what, what gain have you added to that bass? I, he's never ever given me like a straight answer. He just looks at me. He's like, Oh, I don't know. Do you like it? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm just right. curious. Like, how, how how did you get there? And he's yeah. like, I don't know. It just, it just, it, I just, it sounds cool. Right. That's literally what he's doing. I mean, he's yeah, literally yeah. following his heart uh, on every single. There's thousands and thousands of decisions being made until it sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's his ears. And, he's using his ears. That's what you're fucking supposed to do. That's what. That's what we have lost with the computer more than anything because you're looking at it like it's just people are not using their ears as much yeah and i mean you're right i mean people listening may think that sounds like uh just such a stock phrase or something but like recently when i said to him uh, i had this weird experience with a mixing engineer and they gave me this back and told me uh they couldn't couldn't be any more low end added. It couldn't be any more high end added. It's just we were powerless. And he was like, "Quiet, Philistine." <laughs> yeah, he was just looking at me like because when I'm in the studio with John, I'm like, "Well, I've been taught by other engineers we can't add any more now because it's a spatial problem now." Right, right. Like, what? Right. He looks at me. He's like, "We can add whatever the fuck we want." Like, <laughs> yeah. The fuck are they talking about? Yeah. And <laughs> I love that shit. Yeah. He just doesn't care at all. And then when I ask him, you know, I was in this situation recently with an engineer. He'll interrupt me. He'll just be like, it sounds like they just they weren't even listening to the song. You know? Oh, wow. So really? It's, ex- it's yeah. exactly what huh. you just said. It's like people don't even listen to the fucking song anymore. And or they never learned. Like you have to have some not even necessarily songwriter instinct, but maybe like a, just the feeling of like a vocalist or something that can, you can identify with like what this song ought to feel like. Mm. And he's basically saying like, oh, they're just disengaged from it. They're, they're not even using that part of their brain, you know? It's so interesting you say that because just even recently I was uh, working on a session where 
you know, I thought I played this like fairly perfect take, you know, like a live, like three and a half minute drum take that just felt great. And I see that, you know, the person I'm recording with kind of moving stuff around a little. And I'm like, what's going on? And, and it was literally just these, like, it was actually like mapping on pro tools. It was like, we didn't even listen to it back yet. Uh, and there was just these sort of like things uh, that like looked like it was hanging over just a bit, you know, to something else and like pulling them back. And I'm just saying, you know, I've kind of given up. I'm a drummer. I'm a 40 year old drummer. So I've acquiesced <laughs> to the fact that I have no power. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, when this happens now, I'm more of like a, well, all right, that's cool. Uh, than actually doing anything about it. But it, but it's it's another highlight of what you're talking about. It's interesting. Um, yeah, so, that's that's yeah. funny. I mean, I think if we keep going down that road, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I could do an hour just talking shit about. Oh, I don't too, want so. I don't want you and Brad to start right now. This is like <laughs> this is a an awfully nerdy tape op wormhole we could get into. Um, but the cool thing is, uh, what I was mentioning about the bowling is, I brought that up to John. And said that he should get the North Carolina one going. And he said, great idea. So I think Mm -hmm. you may be getting a text fairly soon inviting you to some North Carolina bowling. Um, Well, I mean, you're setting him up because, like, he doesn't know shit about my legacy. Oh, you you got game? (laughs) Oh, you got game? Well, there was this one birthday party (laughs) once where... (laughs) I mean, you already told me you're good at pool, which surprised me. So yeah, if you told me I'm you're some kind of into bowling hustler now, I'd be like, ah, right, you it know. It was just, so, there was one time and I did the whole, I like decided to throw it in between my legs and I got a strike. And, and of course <laughs> I will never do it again. But like, you know, those eight friends in my sophomore of college <laughs> year will will still tell the tale. So you gra- know I mean? you're no are you nicknamed Granny style to that crew? <laughs> Is that no Granny you're talking about with the the two hands. I'm talking about from behind my back through my Oh, legs. that one's fun. Yeah. Okay. Dude, I'm talking globetrotter shit. That's okay, legendary. Bro? Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were going the other way. <laughs> Yeah, you thought I was gonna brag about that? I, I was I was a little surprised that this is what you were flexing with. Yeah. Like John, guess what? Invite Emil to bowling. He's gonna go granny style for you. Make sure to put the bumpers up for Emil, you know? So now that we've been talking about John and bowling, so we're back in North Carolina now. Um you know, I was I know you've talked about it a bunch and why you moved back to Raleigh and stuff, but just kind of readdressing for you, like how it's going, how you're feeling about it. And then as a, a fan, I, I, I was curious because of the time and just the scenes, if you knew Al Burian and were a fan of, you know, his music or writing. You don't know the answer to this. You, you sure you're just asking me this? This is totally random. Do you, do you actually really know each other? Yeah, that's really weird you're bringing that up. Oh, um, is it bad? No, 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 it's not bad. It's oh, not okay. bad. Okay. Um, but, I'm, but I'd like to talk about it like in a way that people who have no idea who you're talking about will know why it's interesting. Uh, I will try. Because I am a big yeah. fan of, of both of yours and even like not in what you say or obviously the music you play, but there's something in a vibe 
that does feel similar to me, I guess. That's interesting that you say that. Um, he was a huge influence on me when I was in um, ninth grade. Oh, wow. Maybe eighth grade, but ninth grade. That was that was his moment um, in my life uh, that, that fucked me up. But basically, um, that thing I was talking about with the right hand having the cassette and the left hand having like the shrink-wrapped CD of garbage, um, he was the first kid in Chapel Hill that I knew of that pressed his own records. Oh, wow. Um, so he actually pressed them just like himself and really, I don't think, gave too much of a shit about like if they were available. Like, I swear to God, bro. <laughs> I really like saying bro. It sounds so strange to me. It's hilarious. But I swear to God that um, a drunken night, whew, very drunken night, probably about five months ago, I was begging some little German kid on Discogs <laughs> to sell me one of Al's first tapes in ninth grade oh, for $100. Whoa. And he wouldn't let it go. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. So so what I'm trying to say to you is that um I mean Al would he would not even know what I was talking about, but I did in some sense maybe build myself in in an image that he was doing because I was like, Oh, like you can you can literally like publish yourself right. and put it down for all to see permanently yeah. and be like, Listen, motherfuckers. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm a ninth grader and I've got, you know, the world at my fingertips wow. and I'm, I'm going to explain it to you. He was, um, so he was he already was, kicking you know, it like that when he was like 14. Well, I, that's how old I was. Oh, he was right. a couple he was a years, little older, yeah. years older. And, um, basically, um, to his great, uh, embarrassment, um, in my world, like in my, you know, I'm drinking, drinking my drinks late at night. I've got a, you know, a sizable record collection, but I really enjoy taking those seven inches out, which, you know, I'm one of the only people in the world that would ever, ever, you know, give a shit about something like this high school seven inch. Right. <laughs> but like, to me, it is as good as the dead Kennedys. It's, it's a, it's a, in theory, a technically a pale imitation of the dead Kennedys. But to me, it's, it's almost, it is better. It's better than the Dead Kennedys. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the my favorite part about it, and I've said this before on, on, on a podcast, but my favorite part about it is the band name. It's one of, it, it encapsulizes my ninth grade year um, in so many ways, but it was called the Celibate Commandos. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and man, they were funny. They were hyper political. They were bad at their instruments. Were they cel <laughs> were they the celibate commandos because of like minor threat? Were they into the no sex thing? Oh no, I think they oh, just okay. were they just, just found they had cool not name. touched a girl yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it wasn't moral, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was it was like super political. Okay. Like the songs, oh my God. They're so funny. They're so, so, so funny. Um, they're trite in the best way that I've ever heard a hardcore song be. <laughs> Pre preachy in all the right ways and just 
dumb as fuck, but always right. He's always right. <laughs> and that's what hardcore sort of is in a strange way, I suppose. Um, but like, um, it's that strange combination of, of factors, this kind of, you know, caveman, you know, you haven't really learned much yet. I mean, the drummer is just fucking up right and left. <laughs> the bass player, I remember at the Battle of the Bands, I saw him at Chapel High School, and he, like, his whole bass fell off of his whole body. And he just didn't know how to recover. I mean, it was a disaster. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> Man, I loved that goddamn band, and I have all their stuff except for these tapes. I'm They're still on Discogs. Looking... Well, no, on even YouTube. to find them on... Even to find them on Discogs is really, really uh, a chore um, yeah. to kind of dig dig it all up. But this if cool. anybody finds that German kid, uh, I will buy the cassette off them if they can woo him. He has no idea what he doesn't care about the fuck it is. <laughs> um, and of course, it's over there because Al and his bandmates have all lived in Germany. So it's just, oh, right. I don't know how, yeah. yeah, why it's in this kid's hands. But the one I'm looking for still, I mean, I think about this shit a lot, dude. But like, the one I'm looking for still is like, I remember taking the bus home, fucking straight up yellow school bus, like as I'm stepping on it. I mean, I've got my backpack. I I probably looked eight and my friend had this cassette of celibate commandos and it's got like a hand reaching up out of the blackness and just like crushing the world or something. And it's got this one song. I don't even remember what it was like exactly about, but it just, I know it goes Frank Sinatra's a whore. <laughs> Frank Sinatra's a whore. <laughs> I, have, I don't know what he did. Maybe some Pepsi commercial. You know, you yeah, just right, like yeah. make it into this lifestyle. Sure. Thing, you know, I'm not like Frank, you know, whatever. <laughs> but like, it was so cool. And, uh, I've never seen that tape since the moment I was stepping on that bus. And so one of my great life missions is to, to locate that tape. Wow. I will pay, you know, I'll pay anything, man. Yeah. Let's get it out there. I'll blast <laughs> this in the intro. It looks like uh, it says Martin Burian was in the band too. Al's brother, I assume. Martin was actually the really the sweet one. He was the sweetest <laughs> guy and he was, he the, had no idea what to do. Right. Yeah, he was, but he had no idea what to do on the drums and it sounds cool as fuck. He just, right. yeah, he yeah. doesn't care. He does. He goes for it. It's all first take and it just, it's a mess, but it's fucking charming as hell. I love it. And that. I would never want it to be anything other than this, you know, and I've actually covered one of those songs. It's called, um, Thanksgiving. It's all about sitting. <laughs> it's all about sitting down at the um, the family dinner table. It's like, yeah, it's Thanksgiving, so let's all give thanks. It starts with this with this big like you know kind of proclamation <laughs> for all that money in the bank and all the food laid on the table. It, it like it sets it up, and then it's just kind of like one, two, three, four. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's Thanksgiving. Thanks for what? People die from programs cut. The rich man holiday really sucks. It's Thanksgiving. Thanks for what? Yes. You know? Yes. And it's so fucking uh, dope. They would have been my so, favorite band. Yeah. yeah. It's so dumb, but it's so right. You know what I mean? So, so dope. It's not that dumb. Cause I mean, like when you, <laughs> I really don't think so. Cause when you think of it in context, right? Like I hear something like that and yes, a little amateurish, 
sure, like like maybe you didn't like intellectualize it so well. But the way I look at it is the fact that like, you know, we were raised in like American public school institutions. Like we were we were taught something with a straight face, you know, that was uh incorrect the entire time. Well, uh, dude, dude, so, he taught all the lyrics are about that in real time right. as he's being t- taught it and he knows. I yeah, mean, right. I, I don't know how brilliant Al really is in, in real life, but damn, that shit felt really empowering to see a kid do that in front of you during lunchtime. He they right. set up their fucking instruments at lunch in my goddamn high school. I'm in ninth grade and I get to see that. Right, like, fuck right. the dead Kennedys. That shit was immediate. It was right in front of me. You know what I mean? It's interesting. Well, I think the thing that, you know, obviously because so much of Al's writing is about being from North Carolina and like connections mm-hmm. to like the university through his, his family and, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I think what connected me with, like, I literally read Burn Collector, maybe the first like three tours I went on, it just like sat in my backpack because it was like, very inspiring mm-hmm. to me and the way he thinks uh, less the way he thinks. And it's almost the same with you, not to put my nose up your ass, but I appreciate people who not only think about these things, but manage to get themselves to the other side and manage mm. to do it in a way that I can understand. And I think I really appreciated Al's method in like, I hear the angst. I hear him being as upset as I am but it's written in this way that's like really clear and smart and intelligent. Mm -hmm. And I connected with that because I was angsty, but also I wasn't like, I didn't want to sit outside of a store all night drinking a 40 and just fucking like, I wanted to a little, but I still wanted to come home and watch something deep and then like get into, you know, I wasn't like living that way. So when I found, like punks to me that were able to like intellectualize things in a certain way. I really connected to Mm -hmm. it. And I, I feel the same way with you. Like it's this kind of, um, I like people who feel as, as pained as me, but haven't given up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the punk thing that, that was my, I feel like that was the, the little manger I was born in, you know, like I was Mm. born, not with the motherfucking mohawk and an exploited back tat, but like I'm, <laughs> I'm saying, like I was born in the the manger of the underground. Like I, that's that's uh, that's the soil that that my whole body and everything has come fucking out of. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said it before to people, and they're like, "I have no idea what you're talking about." I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, whatever." You clearly it, you know, weren't born in the manger. <laughs> 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 Doesn't even matter. Yeah. But um, in in Al's defense, when I say it was dumb, I mean I'm just saying it was an 11th grader basically um, who was copying his idols, but didn't maybe know that he, in a way, maybe that he was doing something that stood up on its own two feet so well that a kid like me could hold it in their hands in 2021 and say. I love this goddamn record. You know, this makes my life fucking better. Yeah. And I mean, I, I hope he hears it. I don't know if you know him now. I hope he hears this. But um, but when I say it was done, like my, the reason why I said that is because the funniest thing about the whole thing, and I've, I've described this once before, but uh, is the cover, man. 
I mean, mm. you can make some pretty decent music when you're that age, but you do not have an aesthetic command of like right. graphic imagery yet. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the motherfucking first cover is just the most horrid stick figure drawing of a young woman with a, a baby in her arms um, walking by McDonald's um, with the executive inside of like some sort of manager inside of the window in the air conditioned building giving her the finger. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, how could an 11th grade little boy even identify with this stuff? Yeah. It just, wow. it was like, he was just like ripping it out of the newspaper and putting it onto his seven yeah. inch for, for the ninth grade boy who had also no idea what the fuck he was talking right, about. Right. Really? Yeah. You know, like the the clash in Libya, you know, like, what do I know (laughs) about this shit? And yet I'm like, yo, I know all the words and I'm singing it at lunchtime. But, you know, that that shit will um, that shit will warp your your life trajectory for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, you're talking to someone born out of the manger. So when I hear that, I'm just like, oh, man, good. These kids saw the bullshit early on. You know, they knew that that McDonald's was. Whoever was behind McDonald's was giving us the finger. You know, it became pretty clear early on, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like you see the teacher kind of, you know, reprimand all the other kids and and really hold them to high standards and like get ashamed at their bad, you know, you know, their shitty paper that they got a D minus on. But I feel like if someone like Al and and maybe sometimes me a couple times in my life, you know, the teacher kind of took me aside after class and just said, like, you know, don't even come in. Like, you're going to be fine. Right. You know what I mean? Like, the, the fucking, the music teacher did that to me. He just said, why are you even coming? He, it's like he knew I didn't want to be there. And mm. he just said, like, go, just go fuck off then. I mean, I was insulting him by not wanting to be in his class that bad. Cause I probably started smoking pot and shit, but right, like right. Um, he could see it. He could see that all I wanted to do was go out to the, the parking lot. And I, you know, I had a, some fifths of gin or something and like a, a joint or something and, you know, just go get stupid and dazed and confused. And he's like, why, why even come in, you know, man? Wow. Like, but in, in a sense, he's also saying you're, you're on a path man right right he knew i don't need to help you in a weird way and there are moments like that in your life that when an adult looks at you and takes you seriously like that it's it's such a huge thing and i really like i hang with my buds um kids now and like i don't have to think about that approach it's just something that i would have wanted and Mm, and men were not able to do for me you know right Classically, we're scared of children when I was a kid, it felt like. Uh Um, So to be able to be present with kids now is, to me, really fun and, like, rewarding. And and I feel like it's a different, um, maybe even a different era or approach where I can be, like, totally unselfconscious in that sense. But, like, you know, 
that's a beautiful thing. Hopefully, I think in a sense, people saw Al was going places and, and he, um, it's strange everywhere I go in the world. I feel like he just like pops up. Like, like when I moved to Portland, the, this is 1999. The first thing I did was get invited to go see like the local big indie movie. Um, that was like about a bunch of people playing like hipsters playing D and D. I know that sounds stupid. And (laughs) it was, yes. Um, but like Al was the star of the film. Oh, really? It's just random. Yeah. 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 So I sat down (laughs) in the theater and, you know, I was, really nervous about what was going to happen to me. You know, it was like 20, God, it was, it was early. And I was like, I was really just like unsure of like, what the fuck am I doing out here? And it's like, I sat down the theater, the lights went down and the guy from my high school is a star of the movie, you know? Right. And it's just been like that with, with people like him in my life where I'm like, Oh, like, I know I have some sort of weird spiritual anchor happening here. You yeah. Know? Like right. Duncan, Duncan moving me out to inviting me to move out to LA and, and all those things and um, encountering Al over in Germany in, in a sense um, in parallel lives. And then not even that long ago, I was driving down the street um, a couple blocks from where I grew up, where I, still now live because I've moved back and I saw Al Burian um, at a bus stop and he, he was sunburnt. He was aggravated and he looked like he was swatting at flies (laughs) on his head. And it, it was like, it was like a moment where I saw him and I just like, I was like, Oh man, like, is he like mentally ill? Yeah. It's like, is he Okay. And um, I texted that guy, Harrison Haynes, who was the drummer for his second band called Hellbender, Hellbender. who was in La Savi Five. Right. He's still in La Savi Five. Fucking cool dude. And I texted him. I said, I think I just saw Alberian like on like a bus bench, like looking kind of homeless, like swatting flies, uh, a little confused. And, and he just laughed so hard and said like, he was, he's visiting his mom and everything's fine or something. <laughs> just, 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 <laughs> gen, just a general malcontent. Not, not like, not, not like an overall. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Right. Hear. Right. Like he, yeah. he's writing his next hit right now. Right. Like right. In, right. In like think, it's called fly swatter. Yeah. yeah These yeah. fucking flies. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's funny. It's, I think I've even heard you talk about that. How like, you know, I remember the first time I had Hellbender come play uh, an Elks Lodge in New Jersey in like the no mid nineties. Yeah, they, it no was. Way. It was a show with. Uh, I don't. I don't think it was a package, but I put them together with uh, this band in Kindle from Louisville, Two Line Filler from Canada. Um, yeah, a bunch of random bands, and oh, and Piebald, early Piebald. And one of the things that always made me laugh about that memory and even the way you describe it is there was a beef that day between no. the members of Piebald and Enkindle, which, you know, seen beef. They both thought they were super cool, had problems with each other. And I remember like through the whole thing, the one person who was just like super punk and super chill and super like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys was Al like the whole time. <laughs> You know, which I was, 
I was like impressed then because I was already like a fan. And then as the year has gone on, I'm like, all right, this motherfucker's legit. Thank goodness, you know? Um, but, but that did That's so funny. Yeah. That, I mean, that led to something I, you know, it might, I know we're going a long time here. It's probably the last heavy thing I'll bring up, but, um, sure. You know, I know it's interesting when, when you talk, like you talk about Duncan sometimes in passing where it's like, almost like, like another part of you, like an, like an appendage, you know, like that, that's how important, uh, each other, you, you were to each other in your paths. And one thing I found interesting is that I, I know as a fan of both of you, you've both talked about how you believe in, in some version, you know, I know this is broad of like intelligent design, you know? And mm-hmm. what what that made me wonder is like, do you think you two were sort of pre-programmed or predestined to meet each other somehow as a result? No, I mean, I've never thought I've never thought that. Um, I, it's funny you've you've talked so much about North Carolina. It's it's like hilarious to me but you're you're so you're on it you you like you're guiding me into really cool places i wouldn't normally um maybe meditate on but like uh north carolina is a very bizarre place in the country it sits perfectly right there not too low not too high yeah there's a ton of intellectual energy there classically i think some statistic like the most PhDs in the country or some shit Hmm. at one point. Um, There's a ton of intelligence. And when you name, you know, I've done it before, but like when you name the amount of musical talent that's come from that state, it's, it's staggering. It's like insane. I mean, like just, just Nina Simone, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, Elizabeth Cotton, you're already, I haven't even gotten to like Link Ray, you know, just like, Mm -hmm. it just, it's unstoppable. And like, this is going to sound super weird, but like I met Michael Jordan when I was little and he, he hung with my mom a couple times um, in certain circumstances because she was dating a guy that was working with the team. Oh, wow. And um, I have, I just have a lot of like, deep connection with with like the Michael Jordan era the story you know I would go to the Tar Heels games mm. I mean it, it it was an intense era you know and it's it's not unlike um the fact that I would sit on stage with Fugazi when they came through and and try to run and get him water you know it's right, like right. those things are I don't, it feels like they'll never happen again. Those were like, like, and I don't mean that literally they happen every day, but like for the people of our sort of focus, that manger, those days were like the golden, beautiful glory days. Mm. And, and when I say it that way, it sounds so fucking cheesy (laughs) for people that don't agree, like for people that don't agree or don't like really like truly love punk music like i i i feel i do um they're just like turning the shit off right now yeah right (laughs) but for me um like with skateboarding like there is not a skateboarder alive even the young ones that don't um 
exemplify like like the, don't don't hold up the the like basically 1988 to 1993 right. like that era was the invention of the street style that to this day everyone does and before that era it did not exist it happened right in that pocket yeah, you know and our lives changed we saw the world differently we saw handrails differently we yeah. saw like how to be creative on the street with no money differently yeah and yeah. that was a punk paradigm shift that was a punk revelation True. and it changed us man and we seized it and we tried to follow our instincts, you know, in that direction. And it created, you know, like punk did a massive industry that's completely uninteresting to me now. <laughs> right. But yeah. I'm just saying sometimes there is a scientific element to these golden days, to those glory days. And sometimes there are people like Cavalero who, when you watch their body move in 1985, it's the genesis point. It's it's the heart of what skateboarding is. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And when you watch Michael Jordan move, it is the heart of what basketball, where the beauty is of the Zen, of like basically the Taoist aspect of it and mm -hmm. his story. That entire thing to me is is fascinating because I don't. I'm not just interested in any one bit of anthropology because I don't get tired. You know, like yeah, my mind yeah. just goes and goes yeah, and goes. And, um, I just, I don't know. There's so much about all that stuff that made me, me that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out and, and it sounds so self-involved, but honestly I have fun doing it and I did the podcast for myself. I didn't, um, I didn't do it for other people. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That, that was like a gift to me, you know, <laughs> Well, I like that gift. So, I mean, so is the point of that really more that, you know, um, you know, this idea that there's some like de determining factor going in. So even if there is intelligent design or of some point, you're, you, you're still put on, put on this place and, and let to tackle it randomly. You think? I think that Duncan coming to my life uh, in North Carolina in that year is so immediately 100% arbitrary and immediately 100% you know destiny they're coexisting somehow yeah. that like like the fact that those people got to enjoy the challenges that they created for each other that made them better people and made them better thinkers is the way it really ought to be when when you have a friend like they can offer you so many different things. It's not just support. You know, it's not yeah, yeah. just, you know, that you are attracted some to someone sexually or it's not just this one thing. Like spiritually, like you can create um, a kind of hurdle for someone that you care about and you can actually, I think, help them grow. And mm -hmm. we did that for each other you know, unknowingly in a way, um, maybe at first, but we were on a ton of acid. So it became <laughs> obvious yeah, what, right. what was going on. Right, right. And, um, and, you know, I didn't think we were gonna make it through many different aspects of 
our lives or our friendships and, 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 and our careers or any of those things like didn't seem obvious to me. Um, so the real like fluke, like the, the odd part about it is that we have some money in the bank and we're smiling and like walking down the street together just a couple weeks ago in Asheville and we're laid back and we're happy with who we are and we still cannot judge each other and we can still just kind of coexist and, and like see what's next. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a really lucky, nice thing. And I know Mm -hmm. that we both don't have that thing with anyone else. It's like, it's just that thing. It's, it's really unique. It's beautiful. Yeah, the way you even talk about it sounds it it warmed me up when you were talking about it to the point that it almost like makes me want to cry. It's really nice. <laughs> it is. It's sweet. It's really sweet. And I'm glad you guys well, you found know, each you, other you, It's what you want. Um Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In in a in like a lover or like it's what you want in a mm-hmm. in a child. It's what you want in yeah. a, in in your parents. Sure. It's what you want, you know, in your it's actual brotherhood, you right. know, it's actual, like, present, accepting other people and and wanting them to do good. Like, I remember one of the first times we met, he talks about um, how we'd play pinball together. And I remember we were both really good at times. Um, and then we'd get in really just terrible moods. Just in general, <laughs> right. we were both often um just really upset about everything and um i just remember looking over his shoulder sometimes he was so good so good and this was just you know we're biding our time in the fucking student yeah um, yeah. whatever that is by the cafeteria and like student union or whatever and i was looking over his shoulder and i was you know, it's like there's a voice inside of you that wants the competitor's ball to just go straight down. Like right. in, in basketball, you want them to miss and yeah. fall. You yeah. want everybody to – the competitor is supposed to be humiliated. The competitor is supposed to be ruined. Yeah, and it's you like that thing you hate about yourself. Glory. Right? You're like, oh, don't twist your ankle, but maybe twist your ankle. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, yeah, I always had – I have a problem with that part of myself. Like I have sure. a part of myself that wants to be the best at something. Mm. I, I mm-hmm. wouldn't call it that. I wouldn't, that's not how I would normally articulate, articulate it, but it, it basically, I have a part of myself that has a really just incessant fire. And then I have a part of myself that is deeply ashamed of like, mm-hmm like wanting to win. Like I yeah. don't, I don't want to win. Right. I don't, that's not what I want. I'm not interested in it. I actually kind of despise winning because I feel like there's a kind of weird post coital yeah. kind of release where it's like the challenge is over and I'm, I get kind of yeah. bummed out. I feel nothing but guilty when I win. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> I'd rather there's a part in the last dance where they talk about Michael Jordan creating um, enemies for himself. Right. Leaking false statements into the press. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to make himself angry so he could rise to an occasion. Makes so much sense to me that it's just you have to feel... You have to feel like that, that 
intense passion. It's about that. It's not about like why you feel it or any other thing. You just, the, the immense engagement that that ends up yeah. like uh, developing, you know? But you're right. That's so hard to come to terms with, right? Cause it's like you, you intellectualize, you know, you think about the world and how many people there are and how insignificant each individual task can be. And like, you really shouldn't put that much on it. You know, you can get yourself in that headspace, but then be in the moment and be like, oh my God, I really want to fucking win. Like, even though you just told yourself all that stuff, you still like have that feeling. It's kind of sucks, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's almost, it's almost corrosive. Yeah. Like it's, it's eating you inside. And I, it really is like some sort of dark side shit that, that I, I hate. And, uh, but I, I remember, in the most like whatever posi Hallmark card way, I guess I don't know what was happening if we'd played a lot of pinball by this point, but I remember looking over his shoulder and kind of watching him play and thinking, if I do want his ball to go down, if I want him to lose um, by the odds of that sort of um, desire I, I'm basically wanting some sort of myself to lose mm-hmm. and, and the whole, like us to all be stricken with bad luck huh. and almost like a virus, yeah. you know, like the, the, the momentum of this game that we are in even as life, you know, right. if I, if I want to push that kind of um, negative enhancement on the algorithm or whatever, it's going to apply to me too. And I remember having this weird kind of, you know, step back Zen moment where I'm like, okay, you know, like, like I can't, I can't live like that. Like I have to like encourage him like that. I will get that back. Right. I have to, right. you know, I have to want Duncan to succeed. And I think in some weird way, I don't know when we figured that shit out. Cause it took us a long time basically to get to a place of happiness, maybe I would say later and like maybe more towards when he started his podcast. That's when I remember us feeling a lot better about ourselves and about our relationship and being able to kind of meet in the middle. Um, Before that, everything was really difficult and awkward and we were both really failing, just failing for years, you know, and, and I don't even know what that means to someone else. But for me, I just felt I was just an insignificant. I just felt I was um, just applicable to no one, right. you know. Right. And so uh, at, at one point after just, you know, sitting in that, waiting in that whatever, the swamp of that for so long, I think I just, I think maybe we both just got bored with all those thoughts and we're like, I'm going to get up and do something. Time to move on. And yeah. yeah, when we did that, we just kind of grew up and, and coincidentally at the same moment discovered, you know, the thing about ourselves that other people seem to enjoy too. Like they, like right. it's not a coincidence. It just sort of happened. It's like when you take yourself a little less seriously and you let go of that pressure, I think you end up making the best art of your life suddenly. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. 
Well, thanks a lot for um, making all the strategic moves to make this happen. I appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and we're out. We're we out. are out, but but somehow we're in. It's a magical human. Really is. He's philosophy for dummies. That's what we can say. Oh. You know. But I feel like he packages it like that for us, you know? Oh, okay. You think he could have a deeper conversation? I do. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I'm glad right. he knows. I'm glad he knows because it's like, I think that's one of the reasons I might have been a little intimidated going into this is because I am like as deeply into philosophy or existentialism or spirituality as anyone. You know, I, I dig in as much as I can, but I wasn't educated, you right. know? Um, and the things I do know I was self-taught or were given to me. So sometimes when I'm in this position with like actual academics, even though like I understand what they're talking about, I can't like quote Sartre, you know, <laughs> I can't quote Camus. I can't understand like yeah. the history of French philosophy over different centuries and like, I don't fucking know that stuff. No. no so like, so sometimes when I'm in a, you know, in a position like this, I think I'm like, uh Oh, you're a little out of your wheelhouse, buddy. Um, <laughs> and that's where I like, you know, Emil's cool like that. It's like, um, I don't think he, he views it as, uh, being above or more knowledgeable than anyone. It's just like his journey. And hopefully, uh, you feel like jumping on with him and could get something from it, you know, which is, it's a nice way to be. It's the easier way oh, to yeah. be. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm fascinated to see what Emil does with uh, all of his songs. He's got this Dude, huge bank. Of I'm music. really fascinated to I see mean, what this. Uh, he really what he was talking about at the beginning there, because I know for as much as he acknowledges the like, you know, plug it in and get get your ideas down. Like he really does. He dinks around a lot with, him, oh, with yeah. the tech and oh, like yeah. i am very curious i gotta say to, to to hear what the hell he's talking about he's saying like <laughs> i don't play on this i don't sing on it he's just like assembling pieces or something i don't know it seems interesting and i can't wait to hear whatever this record is going to be that he's working yeah. on um, yeah and it's fascinating to me too i mean the idea like you know it's one of the things that's even challenging with doing podcasts for me instead of bands it was something i had to get used to is like, um, you know, when you're in a band and you're sitting in a room with people, there's at least, you know, three other people going, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's cool. You know, and that can yeah. be a very easy determining factor. And if something's making it uh, off the chopping block or not. Right. And when you're just like, I mean, fuck, I can't imagine like the indecision I could be littered with if I was staring at a thousand songs that I made myself that I have to decide myself yeah. if they're the worthy ones or what needs to be done to them. I mean, hell, it's a, it's a whole a different fucking, ball game. It's a big task. It's a daunting whole different task. ball game. So very cool. Anyways, um, catch up with him. Uh, he's on Twitter at Emil underscore Amos. Um, Instagram is holy underscore sons. Uh, and Holy Sons on Facebook. And, and obviously, um, check out all his music. Check out Holy Sons, Grails, Ohm, yeah. 
lilacs and champagne, all this great stuff. And, and of course his podcast drifter sympathy. So, yeah, that's a really interesting podcast. He really assembles a sort of, uh, a dream, I guess it's the easiest way to put it. Oh, that, that, that podcast puts me in a groovy, groovy state of mind a couple (laughs) nights a week. Let's leave it at groovy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, definitely check out Drifter Sympathy and, uh, and, you know, if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash going off track. See what's available there. Support us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can do so. Um, we appreciate the support. Very much so. Thank mm-hmm. you. And remember, if you're going to leave a review, <laughs> listen to some Teddy Pendergrass first. Have a have a. Have a have cocktail, a cocktail. <laughs> open up a couple of the top buttons of your shirt or blouse, let the sultry summer air really creep in there. And, uh, and, and if you're feeling some kind of way, you know, write it down for us. <laughs> we'll see you next week. 